and the principle or the idea around it was can we rather than fill say 30 jobs per month can we fill you know a hundred a thousand ten thousand jobs anywhere around the world in a second um, and the only way that we could do that was through technology and so that was kind of where the idea started to spawn was how do we start creating a platform that allowed for that This is People Building Businesses, the podcast from the team at YBF Ventures. Thanks a million for listening. My name is Jason Lim, and our guest today is Weeploy CEO and co-founder, Tony Wu. Weeploy is one of the most exciting and fast-growing tech companies in Australia because of its disruption of the recruitment space. They describe themselves as the world's best on-demand staffing platform. The Weeploy platform connects businesses with short-term staffing issues, to a community of empowered and pre-vetted on-demand staff. Their clients include Vice, Lonely Planet, Mecha Cosmetica, Nando's, Slack, Vic Super, and the list goes on. The team's grown massively in three years with, according to LinkedIn, over 80 employees now working for the company. A very impressive journey so far. Let's find out a little more about it. Before we talk to Tony, I'd like to tell you a bit more about YBF. We run tech innovation hubs in Melbourne and Sydney. We help our startups to scale, scale-ups to succeed, and corporates to innovate. You can find out more at ybfventures.com. Now, let's jump straight into it. Tony, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I, I just need to get a snippet of that, and I'm just going to use that for any intros uh, whenever I'm meeting anyone anymore. <laughs> that, that, was, that was spot on. So, Tony, I don't know much about you, but I do know that you love jujitsu. Yep. And that it's influenced the way that you live and work. Well, there's some some really good research happening. What, what's that all about, jujitsu? Um, so jujitsu is a martial art. Uh, the one that I do is Brazilian jujitsu, um, and I started it probably about eight years ago, um, and has greatly impacted my life um, and many people around me. Uh, I, I definitely, you know, there's this kind of cult-like following, and a lot of people talk about it in the sense of, you know, um, it actually for me, you know, saved my life. And, and I think if, if I didn't have Jujutsu, I wouldn't be here today. Um, when I started, I was over 100 kilos and living a very unhealthy and toxic life. Um, and basically, yeah, it's a, it's a martial art that uh, derived from Japan uh, out of the judo family. Um, went to Brazil and basically um, a guy called Helio, Sun, uh, Helio Gracie, he... Um, there's a family and Helio Gracie was the youngest or the most frail. Um, and so the traditional judo um, way was too, I guess, taxing and his brothers would, would basically beat him up. So what he ended up figuring out was how can he leverage his size and you know, lack of strength to be able to beat his, um, his, his brothers. And so he developed a form uh, that, you know, Gracie Jiu-Jitsu or Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, um, which is all around basically leverage um, a lot of mathematics and and just angles so that you know you could be a, a smaller person um, and and be able to defeat a bigger person um, and it's all around basically uh, locks so body locks um, joint locks so the idea to is to submit your opponent by either breaking a limb or putting them to sleep and it sounds horrific but <laughs> but it's it is uh they call it the gentle art okay interesting <laughs> i like asking these questions because you know it, it this is podcast is called people building businesses yeah it's all about the person building it so um drilling into that a bit 
bit more. How did you first come across it out of curiosity? Um, so I was, I was just trying to lose weight and I was doing kickboxing at the time, actually. Um, just, just like, you know, cardio wise, not like anything crazy. Um, and I, a friend of mine in the gym basically said, why don't you come and try this? And I was like, no, I don't want this. This looks weird. You know, you're rolling around the gr- on the ground kind of stuff. And then we went in and in about six seconds, it nearly broke my arm. And oh, I was wow. Like, Wow, okay. So the kickboxing didn't work at all. No, no. Um, <laughs> and, and that was when I got introduced to it. When I, when I fell in love with it was um, this component. Like I was going through a really kind of, I guess, a you know, rough time, I guess. And, and one of my best mates at the time had passed away from an overdose. And when that happened, it was like, a, you know, obviously a you know, very shattering moment. Um, but what, what made me understand why I love jujitsu was I came into the gym one day and, and my, my coach looked at me and he could straight away just go, like what's wrong and i didn't want to tell him much um so we rolled and and uh rolling is like sparring and so when we started to spar he goes tony you're gonna spar with me and for 30 minutes he basically just bashed me um in the in the most best way which was what i needed i needed to exert my anger um and he turned around to me and he said at the end of the uh, he found out obviously what, what was happening and he said to me um for the next month uh, I need you to promise me that you're going to come in every day and train. Um, and I was like, oh, you know, and he goes, if you don't leave the gym, right? I, otherwise I don't want you to shoot. So I was like, all right, like I'll, I'll, I'll come. Um, so I did. And what I started to realize quickly within the week was that throughout the day I'd be so angry, but as soon as I got to jujitsu, I absolutely was just so happy. And I think that was something that fundamentally shaped my life where I started to understand the dynamic between what happiness meant and what sad and anger meant, you know, and the light and that put perspective into my life where I was able to go, okay, what I'm doing today is not something that I enjoy and does not bring me that joy. So how do I go and get more of this joy? And that's how I started to you know, fall in love and commit to the art. That's incredible. And do you practice that in the world of business and entrepreneurship as well? How does that reflect itself? in? Yeah, I mean, the whole reason we started WePlay was um, I wanted to be a jiu-jitsu world champion. Um, so I managed to get over the championships twice, uh, fought twice, lost twice. Um, and really kind of looking back on it, it was this starting to uncover this fear element, which was I was too scared to... Um, quit my job at the time uh, because of a salary and all that kind of stuff. And so when it came back down to it, it was how do I do something that I love and brings me joy as much as jujitsu full time. And that's the basis of what WePloy is there to solve is to, to provide people the ability to have the fearlessness to be able to quit their job and, and, or, you know, do the things that they really love. Um, so that, I mean, that's one element. The other element is the discipline, right? Is that every day, um, you know, with jujitsu, you have a disciplined set of principles. Um, it's an incredibly humbling experience where, um, you're, you're taught and reminded every day that there are people out there that are better than you, stronger than you. Um, and you are just, you know, you know, you, you know nothing, right? Um, and so every day is about learning something new to be able to add to my essential game. Um, and so when I look at that from a business and life perspective, um, it's, it's really about coming into every day as a, a new training session and going, all right, what can I learn today? What can I add to my repertoire of my game? And how do I get through today and, and try to beat some of my opponents? You know? That's incredible. And look, we'll jump more into the WePloy story sure. uh, later on. But, you know, it sounds like you haven't had an easy upbringing either. Uh, growing up, um, based on our research at least, yeah, um, sure. <laughs> it seems like you had a pretty tough upbringing with not a lot of money. And your parents scraped together money um, to send you to university as well. Uh, what was what was that childhood and upbringing like for you? And yeah, I mean, I think it's not 
it's not dissimilar to a lot of ethnic families that you know uh being kind of that first generation they they leave their country with you know two suit bags and and that's it or a couple hundred dollars um so my parents did that and and they came over and growing up it was something where you you know uh, money you're, you're taught money is obviously the the sol- the solution to a lot of things um so growing up you know and and, and I, I love my parents for it is um they, they they worked extremely hard to put food on the table and for me it was one of those things where you know from a it, it, it i guess created a deep motivation um that pushes me still today which is basically i want to be able to repay them you know um it's it's hard you know like i, I one of the the most fondest memories for me was um you know uh my parents scraped together everything they had um and and they saw that i wasn't doing too well at school in my in the public school um so they scraped everything together and got me and sent me to a private school um and at the time like i wanted to leave and and uh pursue like a laboring career because for me it was like i didn't have any skills i didn't i didn't think much of what i knew so i was just like oh i'll, I'll just use my hands and, and do it and not that there's anything wrong but you know it was just that was my thinking at the time and they're like no you know being asian parents you, you got to go and do something more you know um so they scraped the money and, and and i remember the first day i rocked up to school i rocked up in my dad's van um, where the door was broken and in front of me was a portion behind me was a bentley and as i got out um th- those were cars that i'd seen in magazines only and never seen um face to face and that kind of like put me into a perspective where it's either I make something of my life and repay my parents or or I don't and and so that's kind of like yeah definitely shaped um, a lot of how I think it sounds like that's permeated in the way that you approach business in life as well I mean it sounds like you've uh, had a lot of side hustles from the go from a young age as well um, all the way up to now where you're yeah. also doing another company what were some of those early kind of side hustles that you were working on yeah i mean my first venture into kind of tech was when i was 18 uh, we ran this business called uh, club spy which was our idea was basically to stream it's was, it was almost kind of like a spotify situation where we stream um uh DJ sets of music in a club online so that people could listen to uh, what was happening in a, in a, in a club. Um, those were the days of dial-up, so the streaming quality didn't necessarily work. Um, so that, that business fell apart. Um, and, and some other ones where we ran a marketing business, um, we, we uh, basically wanted to, one of, the, one of the things I always wanted to get into was kind of venture capital of some sort. Um, and we didn't have any money. So we're like, well, how can we leverage our network as essentially the capital? Um, and at the time we had a really good network of clubs and things like that. So what we ended up doing was running events um, and sort of like uh, brand activations for um consumer brands uh addition to that ran um, a suit business or more, a few rag and trade businesses which then turned slightly e-commerce um there's a couple other like random things but what happened to those businesses um some some did well like uh and and some just ultimately failed um i think really coming back to it and this is where it goes back to what i was saying before with jujitsu each one i did was more so because i wanted to make money and I think ultimately that's what sent down the failure was because I wanted to make money, I was too scared to quit my day job. Mm-hmm. And so I would try to do it half ass on the side. Um, and some of them got really good. And, and thinking back, you know, if I had jumped shift and, and, and spent like gone that full time, could have accelerated it. But because I ha- was too scared to do that, I never was able to take the business to the next level. So it always kind of 
remained at a point where, okay, built a little bit of money on the side, but is it sustainable for such and such? Um, and so that I think that was fundamentally the difference was that my heart ultimately wasn't in those businesses. They were just kind of like, oh, here's an opportunity to get rich. Let's chase it. Got know? it. Yeah. So the motivation behind it was just from the wrong place to begin with. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, yeah. And, and just like, because of that, I then did not spend the, the, the time that was required, um, or, or deserved to, to grow them. Right. And, and throughout this process of you trying and starting different companies, well, what do your parents think about all that? Because it sounds like a deviation from the tradi- traditional oh, they hated path. It. They absolutely <laughs> hated it. I mean, like funny stories, even when I started Weeploy for the first six months, um, I hid it from them. Oh, wow. Um, okay. And it was like, uh, I would, uh, like, uh, we were just working and, and it, let's say if I had a dinner, or I had to meet them. I would, I would basically go and grab my suit, put on my suit and then meet them at like the restaurant and be like, Oh, it was a hard day at work today, yeah. you know? Um, but no, no, they, they, they were very much like, okay, you're either going to be a, a, you know, a doctor, um, a lawyer or a, what's the other one? Uh, a scientist or um, whatever, <laughs> right? Um, and, and so they were very much uh, against a lot of the projects that I was doing um, and, and very much like, why don't you just focus on, on, on the corporate hustle and just, just do that, you know? Um, so it was, it was, it was, it was a hard battle um, and a lot of deep conversation or heated conversations with them. We wouldn't want your parents to find out that you're running We Ploy through this podcast. So <laughs> have you told them about it? Yeah, yeah. They, they now know. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. the first time they, they kind of started getting like a bit sus. Sure. Um, and then one day I was like, all right, I'm, I'm going to just bring you to the office and, and t- took them through the office and they're like, Oh, because they'd, they'd seen my other businesses before and, and some were like, we had a store uh, for one of them, which, you know, was, was decent, but they didn't like the idea of kind of retail and all that sort of stuff. Whereas this one, when they came in, they could at least see that it was, you know, a, well, some degrees a real business at the time. Um, you know, we had an office, we had all that kind of stuff and they were still kind of like, well, why are you doing this? But, um, you know, they were, I think by then they were kind of like, all right, well, not much we can do to kind of stop him. Let's just... Let's just see how this thing goes. Um, but over time, I think, you know, they've started to say, okay, well, this is this is actually hanging around, you know, um, drawing a salary. So it's like, okay, well, he's able to survive on it. Let's just, you know, leave it from that perspective. It's awesome. So you've had like a bunch of roles in different companies. I'll just skim through the list. Telstra, um, Vic, Victolic, yeah. Victolic? Yeah, yeah. Uh, MYOB, Michael Page, etc. cetera. Uh, was it during this time of working with these companies that you first thought of Weeploy? When, when did the idea come about? Yeah, I think it's a combination, right? It, it really was um, what, what really like where it came about. I, I hadn't realized that a lot of conversations or a lot of experiences in the different businesses combined was the idea of Weeploy. Um, but where it really sparked was when I, when I was talking about how I came back from the world championships and I was just like, what am I doing? You know, um, and why am I not chasing this full time? And when I started peeling back that layer, um, it was really started to kind of play on my head. The, the, the real kind of, I guess, turning point was, um, my, my partner and I were trekking through Everest and, and, um, I remember there was a little kid called Sergey who ran up to me and he saw my camera and he's like, you know, take a photo. And, um, so I started talking to him and, and, and he showed me his little art book and I was like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he goes, I want to be an artist. Um, and I was like, cool, you know? And, and so later on the trek, I was speaking to my guide and I go, what, what's the likelihood of young Sergey um, becoming an artist? And he goes, look, probably unlikely in this region, you know, there's, they're going to be either three things. They're either going to be a monk, uh, a farmer or um, a Sherpa like him. 
And so I was like, but what about, what about internet? Like, you know, I can see that you have phones here, like you've got YouTube, like, you know, he can speak, you know, decent English. Surely he can leave and go to New York and be an artist or find work. And he goes, yeah, but think about it, Tony. Like, think about the discrimination that happens. Think about, like, if he lands in New York, is he going to be able to find work? Um, and, and at the time, I was working in recruitment. And I was like, as a recruiter, the whole reason I joined the recruitment industry was I wanted to give those people those opportunities. Um, and that kind of, like, really clicked for me, which was in my job, what I'm doing and in this industry, do I believe there's a strong enough solution that is helping people like Sergier so that in the future world, people can move around from country to country and find the work that they want. Um, and I, I didn't, I couldn't see anything that was doing that or, or wanted to do that. And so that was what kind of sparked it. And, and then with the background of at MYB, I was lucky enough to kind of understand how automation um, did a lot of things or helped a lot of uh, their, their tech. I started going, well, if we were to apply that automation principle into the recruitment industry, which had essentially been, had not been uh, touched for a very long time, um, what, what can we do? And, and the principle or the idea around it was, can we, rather than fill, say, 30 jobs per month, can we fill, you know, 100, 1,000, 10,000 jobs anywhere around the world in a second? Um, and the only way that we could do that was through technology. And so that was kind of where the idea started to spawn was how do we start creating a platform that allowed for that? So, yeah, hopefully yeah. that answers that. Absolutely. And you said Everest. Yeah. Yeah, you're into the extreme kind of stuff, clearly. No, I, I'm, I'm not. Um, <laughs> Running companies, no. <laughs> jiu-jitsu, Everest. No, I kind of, I mean, what happened was, so my, my partner... Um, She's the extreme one. She's right. the crazy one. Um, and, and like I wouldn't be here without her today. And she, she was like, I want to go, go do Everest. And I'd always like wanted to do it. Everyone has kind of like some sort of like bucket list. And I was like, I, I wanted to do it, but never kind of thought of, All right, I'm actually going to go do it. And when she said, oh, we're going to go do it, um, I was like, because oh, well, I, I always knew I was going to propose to her. It was more about when um, and, and where. And so when she said Everest, I was like, maybe I can propose to her at Everest. <laughs> so that was kind of like what, what drew me to it. And I was like, all right, you know what? Let's do it. One, I'm not going to let you go do this by yourself because I'm just going to freak out. And two, this was a really good opportunity to, to um, one, propose to her, but, but two, also say goodbye to, to my friend. So um, I was like, you know what? Yeah, let's do it. So I'm, I'm not actually that into, I mean, I do like, like obviously you want, I want to live an incredible life, um, but whether it's extreme or not, it's just, I just, I just like doing things that are fun. Amazing. So um, you've got two co-founders, Nick and Vince. Yes. How did you meet your co-founders? Uh, so Nick and I would choke each other in jujitsu. Um, <laughs> and for a long time, we'd, we'd basically, we'd, we're mates trying to figure out, like he was running um, businesses himself. And um, I was actually just at the time, I think selling him suits or something like that. And so we, we were kind of like helping each other work. Um, so that's how we met. And he, he worked in the recruitment business as well. So um, he understood the, the problems and like, um, you know, what we were trying to solve. And he, because he ran a whole bunch of businesses that were bootstrapped, I ran a bunch of businesses that were bootstrapped. We knew that we needed a whole lot of money for this. Um, so we're like, well, how do we go and get funding? And so um, Nick Nick went to high school with Vince um, and Nick turned around and goes, look, I know this guy, he's taken venture money before or, or you know, uh, capital. Why don't we just ask him? And so... Um, we ultimately caught up for dinner with, with Vince and 
um, at the time Vince was running like, I don't know, nine businesses or something crazy. And he, he was like, oh, I need three people right now. I can use this platform right now. And so that's ultimately how we, um, how we then got involved with Vince. He goes, you know what, rather than me just giving you advice, like I want to get involved in this. Let me help you go get the capital. Awesome. And um, we, we spoke about this briefly before the podcast started, but you literally started WePloy in a bathroom and you literally had staff members sit on <laughs> toilets to be able to start the company. Yeah, um, yeah it's a, uh, we, so our, our investor owns a building and, and it was a vacated um, bathroom shop at the time. And so he just goes like, if you want to work from here, go for it. Um, so yeah, absolutely. We, 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 had, we were working out of there at the beginning and it was funny because we started out growing and it was like, it was really noisy in there. So, um, cause we were trying to fix upstairs. And so we had people literally working in like the, the one guy would go into the shower because it was basically the quietest place to make calls. Another person would just like lie down in the bathtub and just kind of work on their stuff. It was, it was a really like crazy scene. I remember we were interviewing a couple of people at the time and we'd bring them into the business and they'd look around and they'd be like, what, what, what type of business is this? Yeah. <laughs> and, and I remember this one time I was interviewing one of our first employees and behind her, there was this other employee sitting there just facing darkness. And I was just like, I can't imagine what is going through her head right now. You know, um, she turned out actually being an incredible employee, but yeah, at the time we just felt like this is, this is terrible. We need to get our office up. Some yeah, kind of, of weird test that we ploys create. Well, that's it. Exactly. That's a real <laughs> vetting test. Can, can, can you be resilient enough to get through that? That's it. <laughs> the resilience. So, um, what was, what were the early days like? What was the first meaningful step that you took towards starting WePloy when you had no tech, uh, no business, only a group of co-founders and yourself? When you say first meaningful step, uh, I think the first meaningful step was a friend of mine said, download Marvel. Um, and so I downloaded Marvel and basically drew out a wireframe. And um, when I was able to draw that out, I showed Nick and I was like, do you think this will work? And his eyes lit up and he goes, and cause he, he owned a recruitment business at the time and he just goes, this is the future. I'm going to sell my business and shut it down. Wow. Let's move forward. I think that was, that was really meaningful. The second one that kind of really said, Hey, we've got something was, um, we went to the Australian, we, we met this person and he goes, you should go to the Australian tech conference and exhibit. And at the time we didn't have that. We, we'd only raised a, like a, a pre-seed, um, at the time. And so we just said, oh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of money to go exhibit. Should we do this? And we said, screw it, let's go. And we kind of like drew the whole, the, the, the store itself, like was hand drawn. It was like a really um, ugly looking thing looking back at it. But we ended up winning the innovation lab and we were up against like companies like Hyde and things like that. So it was wow. like, it was really, really, really cool. And what happened was in the start of the day, um, no one knew us. If people walked past our stand and would kind of like avoid us because it just looked really bad. And then when I came back, I remember Hugo standing there and he just had a line of people um, waiting, queuing to just find out more. And when that happened, I was like, shit, we've got something here. Um, and then we, at the time, we thought we'd only work with small, like mum and dad sort of style of businesses um, until we could kind of start working with the big players. Um, but after that event, we, we, we started signing on like incredible companies like Vic Super, who's been with us from day one, um, you know, and, and they just helped accelerate our growth. Um, and when we saw them start to use the platform and then turn around and give us the feedback of how much they loved it and like hearing 
well, that that's one point. So that's that's another milestone. I think the third milestone was when I heard. Actually, there's there's so many, right? But was when I heard. Um, I was sitting in a client uh, with a client, and they had the Weeploy in the room, and the Weeploy um, was. To, I won't I won't name her name, but um, she she's she's Muslim. She wears the the headscarf, and she got quite emotional in the meeting because for eight months she'd had been trying to find work, but um, no one would see her, no one would 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 uh, hire her, no one would interview her, um, because a big part of our process we try to remove unconscious bias. And she was so happy that she was able to work in this business, uh, in this client's office, um, and show her value. And the the client actually turned around um, before that, and and uh, without her being there, so it wasn't kind of a, a reactive response. And actually said, "Where did you find these people?" Because um, and this person, uh, she's the GM of this company, worked and had used temps all her life. And she goes, "Literally, she's the best temp I've ever wow. had." And she doesn't even fit the traditional CV of what I look for. I would have never interviewed or brought her in. So I think when that happened, that was kind of the, you know, like, yes, we're doing something that we want to do. Cool. Uh, so when you, when you say remove unconscious bias, how does Weeploy do that? Yeah. Um, so the main things we want to remove is age, sex, gender, um, and also um we want to f- uh, focus on capabilities rather than experience. So in the vetting process, rather than just a traditional kind of CV overlook, we, we partnered with um, organizations to develop essentially an, a digital assessment um, that we could then look at like their cognitive ability. Um, basically, we want to try to find out what their scores are from a, from a capability point and we would then benchmark those scores and from there we would then move them to essentially like... Um, uh, a face-to-face or a, or a phone call so the the start of the vetting is all around based on data rather than like a um i think it's is it subjective or um like a, a an assumptive sort of approach right where you just go oh, i'm gonna look at the cv and i think this person's good and how, how did you develop that data-driven approach to recruitment working with our clients um we knew that we needed to do something better and so we 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 basically built out a a set of assessments and then we'd work with our clients to go what's working what's not um and you know it wasn't wasn't perfect from day one you know we definitely had a lot of screw-ups um and then through the time we started to go okay this is what's meaningful to clients this is what you know this score can correlate to this versus you know versus you know um something else you know like it was just really kind of getting that feedback and just you know, being able to partner with our organizations or, or our clients to understand what was important to them. And do you customize this criteria based on the client that uses your platform? N- no, not really. I mean, like, as in over time, we've customized it, but it's yep. kind of like at the moment, it's a, it's a one size. Because like for the, for the particular role type, we've kind of identified this works really well. Um, what we do have is... A, an, a team that does still do a face-to-face and what they do do is identify uh, they might go oh this person is really good for this type of industry or you know if someone comes from an industry um, let's say uh, finance then they might tag them and go okay this person's really good for the finance sector because of the industry knowledge so they're they're from that point of view but from a client customization point of view no we, we don't do that okay so so winding the clock back again you've just done your first conference uh, you've you've been placed really, really well compared to other people, more established players like hired, et cetera. At what point did, did you go, you know, it's time to raise money? So we, we raised money before the, the 
um, we started the business because we knew we needed to, we just wanted to basically get money off the bat. Um, so we did basically a, 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 like a seed round and then a late seed. Um, so before that conference, we'd raised, um, uh, we'd raised 400K to get things going because um, we, we basically knew, we knew that the formula like, because we both worked in recruitment, we knew the formula. We just said, all right, we need to get this. These are our key highs. Let's get them going. Let's get the, and, and set some milestones. Once that happened, um, we were able to launch and we were able to uh, win that uh, award. Um, and we started getting some really good clients. Um, our investor said, all right, cool. Like, it's time to put Petra on the, on the fire. Um, so we, we, we took another 600K from him. Um, and then from there, we were able to, uh, we set some financial or revenue targets and we were able to accelerate those those targets and and it was clear that things were moving so what ended up happening was um we off the same investor like we've got the angel of all angels um and he just basically said all right guys like what, what do you want to do here you know because uh, you've obviously got something here so how do you how do we put pet fire on this petrol like let's you know growth at all costs kind of thing um so we're like oh like well we might go and raise external capital this kind of stuff and he said all right well look you know you can you can definitely do that i won't stop you from doing that um but from a valuation point like how do you want it like how much do you want to give away of the business etc cetera, etc cetera. so you know he, he really truly believed in our vision from day one he he was an immigrant himself who's built multiple global businesses and now you know owns 25 percent of the shrimp market in vietnam like wow. crazy crazy guy um so he just turned around and said look you know what guys how much are you looking to raise um and and i'll you know, I'll fund it. Wait, get get your business bigger and then go out to external so that you have a better position to, to raise. So that's when we took our, our larger amount. So to date, we've we've raised uh, or, or received in funding um, just under 13 mil AUD. Wow, incredible. And how did you cultivate that early relationship with the investor? Um, so it was, it was a relationship that Vince had already established, um, but, but basically we, we hijacked a dinner and then he followed him onto a plane um, <laughs> and pitched to him and, and basically cornered him in, in, in the plane um, and pitched to him over eight hours of flight, whatever time it was. So he was stuck with you. It was stuck. And then and basically he was like, okay, cool. These, these boys mean, mean business. Um, and he was just, yeah, it was like, I think that's how we kind of established the trust that we didn't, yeah. And uh, like, we, we just, you know, kind of talked to him and really just showed him why we were wanting to do it. Um, and and he just, yeah, I guess he through that, he believed in us. So is it true that you turned down two VCs before taking money from this angel investor? Uh, that's interesting. This is some really, really good uh, research. Again, special um, shout out to Joe Harrington. <laughs> yeah, we, 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 we did turn down a couple of VCs. Um, and yeah, it was really important for us to just kind of look at, um, we didn't want to just take money for the sake of taking money. We wanted to be able to work um, on our terms and build something that we really believed in in the beginning. Like we, we really believed in the beginning stages. It's really important that we have that kind of that creative freedom. And so, you know, not to say VCs are bad. And like, for example, you know, we, we'd love to work with VCs uh, at this stage. Our strategy was, can we take some money that's a, uh, that allows us to have a bit more flexibility and freedom? Um, and then at a later stage, once we've got a little bit more establishment, um, to then take VC money to really accelerate and, and kind of then hone down and, and grow what we're doing. So it's more of an issue of control rather than a valuation issue or anything like Absolutely. that? Absolutely. It was all, it was, hundred percent about control um valuation stuff like that like it's it's a funny one which we're, we're talking through that at the moment and and it's just in my opinion it's just it's just such a 
boring conversation. And so, yeah, it's, it's really just about who will allow us to build the business we want to build. Hey everyone, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you want to hear more interviews like this, subscribe to People Building Businesses on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or YouTube. Now let's get back to our chat with Tony Wu. And I think that's a good segue to the next um, next point or next question. It seems to me that when you founded WePloy, you had this really core central uh, set of values or the, that mission. And that's reflected in the, in the way that you've recruited some amazing people to your team as well. Um, you've got an amazing advisory board. Uh, you've got your investor. You've got the Redbubble CTO, uh, Paul Koya as well. Ron Tomatoes co-founder, Patrick Lee. And uh, Robert Kriegsman from Kriegsman Partners. These are your advisors. How do you find these people and convince them to, to come on board. Yeah, I mean, and, and there's another person missing from that, which is Mikey Slonam, and he's the managing director of Vice. Um, wow. Um, I think, I mean, like, some of them were just relationships that we'd had built over time. Um, so we'll, we were quite lucky on that. Uh, Mikey was someone that we were actually pitching to as a client. Okay. He just, he just said, you know what, boys, I, I really like this. How do I get involved? Um, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. People have asked me this question a few times, and... I don't, I'd like to say a more sort of like specific way of how we did it, but I think it was just, we really believe in what we're doing. Um, and when we spoke to them, we just asked them, like, we just said, hey, this is what we're doing. Like, you know, this is where we want to go. Can you help us and will you join us? And I think it sounds kind of silly, but a lot of this, a lot, even a lot of the clients that we work with, if we didn't ask them, we wouldn't have gotten them, right? Um, and I think it's I think it's really, one thing I see happen a lot is that people were kind of really scared to ask the final question. Like you think about sales, right? I've seen so many sales people, um, they go through the process of discovery, intro, building the rapport, they go, they go through that sales funnel really well, but then they're so scared to just ask for the sale, right? right? And I think, that's all it is, is just, we just asked them, hey, like, this is what it is. Do you want, like, can you get involved? Um, and it was really simple. They were just like, yeah, I, I understand what you're doing. I don't believe in it. Let's do it. Did you have to learn to, to ask? Is that something that you, you learned along the way or was I, this I think, innate? I, I think I learned it from sales. Um, I, I, like, I did a background in sales. Um, I don't know. Like, for, I guess for some people, it maybe is natural. Um, we, just, we just knew, like, we wanted... We knew that these people could help us. Um, and so we just said, hey, like, let's just ask. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, Sorry, it's not, not, not a well-formulated <laughs> no, answer. No, it was, yeah. It's just one of those things that we just said, if we want something, let's just go and ask for it. Yeah, and, sure. And it's either going to be yes or no. Yep. And for a lot of companies, having an advisory board really just means having names on a website or names in a pitch deck. How do you get the most out of your advisory board? Yeah, I mean, like our advisors, we wouldn't be here today without them. Um, it's really like, we just touch base with them every month. And, um, you know, it's definitely something where in the beginning I was like, how do I leverage advisors? And it was, a, it was really like, I went out and asked a lot of questions. And similarly, I just asked them, I just said, I don't know how to work with you. Um, how do we work better, you know? And, and they were like, oh, well, let's, this is what we can do. So every month we kind of just talk to them about here's our problems. Here's what are the things that are keeping me up at night? Um, you know, which one can you help with? And then they would just build and, and they just help. And so from that perspective, it's just, there is no kind of formal 
you must do this kind of thing. Um, you know, we, we tried the whole every month do like an advisor meet kind of situation. It wasn't for us. Uh, we just like to do kind of like one-on-ones um, and just, just say like, these, these are the problems I'm facing. Um, this is what's keeping me up at night. Um, how and where can you help? And, and it's really bringing them along the journey, you know, like um, some of the things that some of our clients have done, um, I mean, some of our advisors have done are things that we didn't necessarily even ask them. It was because of the journey. They were like, oh, I think you're going down this route. So I think you should do such and such. Or based on the conversations I've had, you know, um, then they're like, oh, I, I, you know, like for example, we met up with some really incredible people over in San Fran. Um, now, we've, uh, Patrick lives in San Fran, so he obviously helped us tee up uh, some really great meetings over there. But one of our advisors over here, just through like, chatting is like oh you're going to san fran um oh you're going to america i know a couple of people let me set up some meetings for you and that was an art it was just and they're like i'm going to set set up these meetings because i think this is how they're going to help you um now that i think that kind of foresight from the advisory is developed over time of continuous conversation and just it's like any relationship right I, I don't just go, oh, you're my advisor now and I expect you to do everything. Right. It's really about over time, we start to learn what what it is that's important to them, what it is that, that's important to us and then how do we best work together? Is it phone? Is it email? Is it grab a dinner? Like all those small things that really matter and, and you know, it's a long-term relationship. Do you often get conflicting advice from advisors? Yeah. yeah how I, do you do. filter that out? It's great. I mean, that's what we want, right? We, we want to be challenged. Um it's and and some it's really it's really hard when the conflicting advice makes so much sense right um and and that's what you think of an advisor they're they're there to provide you advice ultimately as as a ceo i have to make the decision so the best thing i can do is get the advice and then weigh it up and so what i want to always do is get the advice that's comparable sit there and then I just go, cool, well, this person said this, this person said this, I think we should do this because of this reason. Um, and often I might already have a decision made and I might go out to the advisory to to see if they can basically challenge or change my thought process. Because for me, that's a really good way of testing whether I feel confident in my direction. Because you know, a lot of times in building a business, you don't necessarily know what you're doing you know, mm. or you're going, oh, I think this is the right way. And I think the difference in executing that is confidence, right? And, and belief. If I kind of half believe in an execution, well, I might half succeed. But if I believe in it and it makes sense, then I'm gonna go 100% at it. And sometimes that's the difference. Um, and so when I speak to the advisors and they give me their conflicting advice, my kind of immediate thought is, does that advice change what I think? And if it does, then I go, cool, all right, well, I need to explore this more. If it doesn't, I'm like, great advice, thank you, but I'm going to keep going. And as CEO, how do you balance that whole trusting your gut versus, you know, making a decision by data and... <laughs> it's, I uh, mean, uh, if, if you've got the answer, um, I'd love to know. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a tough one, right? Um, I think you know it's funny. Uh, the the role of the CEO is 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 a really interesting role, um, and can be quite lonely at times, right? And you have to make these decisions, and and ultimately, it's just one of those things where you sometimes I I will always try to like I will always try to trust my gut first, and then I will try to validate with some sort of data, and if they both make sense cool, we're good. If one of them doesn't make sense, that's when I then go out to a secondary opinion and go, hey, 
this is what I'm thinking. This is what the data is telling me. What's the thought? You know, I, th- I think like um, what's really important um, is I think if you think of a skill set perspective, like, you know, you can go hire, you can go hire all these people, right? And if you think of like skills as, as muscle groups, um, I don't know if you, uh, I'm, I'm sure you know Ivan from, from Brossa. He said yeah. this to me one time and, and it always stuck with me um, where like some people might be flexing their management muscles. Some people might be flexing their, I don't know, um, whatever skill set, right? Um, but the one thing that I, that I believe that no one that you hire can ever outdo a founder on is the founder vision muscle. All right, so I might get outdone on you know the ability to strategize or execute or code or all the, all those sort of muscles, right? But the one thing that um, I'm hired to really flex, or my job is to really continuously flex my founder vision, is that we have a goal and this is where we need to get to, and it's my job to formulate that. So. Um, it's really about asking the right questions, right? And and when I have a conflicting thought, it's I, sp- I spend a lot of time writing down the question that I'm trying to ask because I believe that if I if I can articulate the question that I'm trying to ask correctly, then the answer that I seek will be able to help direct where I go. But if I ask the question, even if it's a couple wording, like same intent, but worded differently, then I could get a whole different answer. So what, yeah, what I, the way I try to balance it is I just, I sit at home um, and I just write down in my iPad a set of questions and I'll rewrite the question multiple times until I go, you know what, this is the question that I'm asking. I need to go ask this question now. Right, and in this day and age, we're seeing we're seeing the phenomenon where founders, especially in later stage companies, uh, you know, they're they're raising a lot of capital, uh, but they're also taking the vision a bit too far. In in case of WeWork, for example, or you know, Uber, etc. Right. So, I guess the question for you is, how do you balance vision and realism? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, one of the things that I uh, always say to um, my other founders is. You know, there's that whole concept of like you want employees to work, uh, act like owners. Mm. Um, for us, it's actually to act like employees um, because employees are. You need to think about execution, right? Um, and so, you know, it's going like it's. I guess the in simple short answer is that I've really spent a lot of my time whilst building Weeploy to surround myself with a really sh- like strong um, set of people that I believe in that can execute and is not afraid to tell me to shut up or say, you know what, you're wrong. This can't happen because of this reason. So they basically will realign me and say, okay, cool, you want to do this? But here's how that, that can happen. So is that realistic? And then you've got to put on your, your employee hanger. You know what, actually, that's not realistic. Okay, then what's the next best thing? So it's that constant realignment with people around you that you trust. And, and for me, that's, that's how I try to keep the realism in it. Um, because you're right. Otherwise, I'll just sit in a state of founder vision and just, you know, We'll, we'll, we'll um, yeah, do some really crazy things. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a great segue to my next question, which is, you know, um, you, you seem to have the ability to recruit some pretty impressive team members. Uh, recently, you recruited a former, former LinkedIn executive, Ben Eatwell, as your CMO, and he's now your COO. And you previously recruited former Slack executive, Marissa Sanzaki, as well. I'm sure there's a lot of people not on that list that I've just mentioned as well. Sure. So as a company that helps other companies recruit, what's your process of recruitment yourself? Um, yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. 
this is kind of goes back to an advisory sort of side. Um, I just, I just try to speak to as many people as possible. Like, um, it, it's, it's first, it's, um, how do I say? I look at the stage of where our business is at and then I go, okay, what, what does our business need at the moment? Um, not what do we need in two years or three years time, but what do we need at the moment? And then through that, I try to identify people who have potential skill sets. So I, I spend a lot of the time on LinkedIn and just kind of searching. Um, and then, and then speaking to people I know. And then from there, I just go out and have and, and meet a lot of people, like especially if it's a, a senior role, right? Um, and I'll meet them multiple times. And the reason why I do that, and I'll meet a lot of people. So if I'm hiring, for example, uh, a CEO, CMO, CEO, or whatever, I'll meet like I'll try to meet like hundred. And 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 the reason why I want to meet more is because I want to gain perspective. And through gaining perspective, I start to understand. Oh, actually, I like this person. I like this person. I don't like this person. Or I like this skill set. And it starts to help me formulate the JD. So rather than going at, sitting at home and just going this is what the JDI want. I start going out and speaking to people. And then through that, what happens in, in, in every senior hire and to degrees junior hires is we put a, we put a real life business case in front of them. Um, and that business case will be essentially a problem that we're working through. And I want to understand how they will work through it and then how that, how they actually would work with me and the business. And through that, that's the most important thing is if they can do that well, then we're good, you know? But they could have a really amazing background but can't go through that. Then I'm like, all right, well, you know, you could interview well but can't do that. So it's, it's, it's really like from a recruitment process point of view, um, I, I try to, you know, I just try to meet as many people and I try to look, I try to base it around the data, which is here's a problem that we're trying to solve. How will you solve this problem? And how do you work to, with me and, and, the, and the relevant party? So if they're going to work closely, for example, with our head of sales, then like I'll get the head of sales involved in the problem so that then we can see how that works. And if that dynamic is good, I don't really care what background they come from they're good right um and and that's that's how it is i guess from your question more specifically around how have we recruited people from like big name businesses and things like that um it's really simple um i i don't rely on like recruiters going out for me i just i'll find the people that i want to speak to so i go on linkedin i search up you know this is the profiles of people that i'm looking for and then once i find them i just i just ask them can we grab a you know catch up for a coffee and then as we start to talk um i'll quickly you know probably in the first or second uh meeting i'll just say look i'm hiring for this position would you be interested um rather than dance around the question and they'll either say no i'm not or Actually, I'm keen to understand more. Um, ben was a really interesting one. I actually reached out to him because I was trying to figure out what were we going to do with our marketing. Um, and so I wanted to, I, I love LinkedIn and I, I think they're an incredible brand and they're obviously in a similar space. So I wanted to understand how do they market. Um, so I reached out to him and just said, look, can I pick your brain about how you market? And he's just like, yeah, cool. And as we got talking more, I started to really like the way he thought and the way we worked. And so it was kind of like a couple of sessions in where I just said, hey, like, would you be interested in working with us? And he just goes, whoa, that's kind of like a, you know, <laughs> sideways question. And, and, he, and it, wasn't, it wasn't a no and it wasn't a yes. It was, I'm keen to learn more. And so what happened was I was like, cool, no problems. Either way, I'm still going to ask you questions because, you know, and we did that. And then over time, he just went, actually, this is something that I, I get it. It makes sense. I understand the problem you're trying to solve. 
I'm in. And and so, yeah, I think it goes back to what I was saying before. It's just, I just, I just go out and ask. And I think a lot of people were kind of scared to ask or just reach out to people. I'll, I, I don't care about cold calling someone or just, you know, I'll, if I'm trying to reach someone and I know someone knows th- them, I'll just ask them for the mobile number and I'll call them and, and wow. just, you know, what, the worst thing they're going to say is how'd you get my motor, mobile number? Um, <laughs> and, and I'll just say, look, I got, I got it off a friend. I want to talk to you about an opportunity and, and they'll, they'll either get pissed off at me, which rarely happens or they'll go, yeah, actually this is interesting. What, you know, it's, it's, flat, it's, it's actually quite flattering. Like if you get a call. So true. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just think like, why hide? Like if you want something, just, just go and call the person and pick up the phone. You know? That's awesome advice for uh, anyone looking to start a business or do something with their career. Thanks for that one. Um, so I, we always found a way to remove unconscious bias in the on-demand staffing side of things. How do you remove unconscious bias when you're hiring a, a full-time employee? Um, I think that's a problem that you would have probably faced in hiring your own people and a lot of companies face when they're trying to staff full-time. Yeah, it's, it's, a, really, it's a really good question. It's, and and it's, I don't think it's solved and I don't think I've got the full answer either. Um, the way that we try to do it is that um, we actually don't, uh, we, we try to get um, our team to hire them as in so multiple people. So it kind of like starts from a, from a ground up point of view is can I create and hire the most diverse people that I can find in the beginning? So rather than just trying to find people that I just, I just like or that just remind me of me or whatever, I just try to hire a whole bunch of people where I might go, you know what, this person, I don't, like there's been, there's actually been people where I've hired where I go, I don't know if I should be hiring this person, but one thing I know is that this person is going to challenge the company's thought process. And and because of that, it's going to it's going to do one or two things. It's either going to break the business or it's going to uplift the business. And if if it gets to a negative point, well we just go, all right, cool, look, it's not working out and we we've, you know, end the relationship. Um, but if it's working out well, then great. So I think a lo- I think too many times in a full-time position we try to hire people that we like and we forget about what we're trying to do. And so for us, what we try to focus on is hiring people that's going to lift the tide. You know, So if this person comes in, they might ruffle a few feathers, which is fine. Are they gonna ruffle the feathers and make a positive impact afterwards? And so by doing that, what we've been able to create is a really diverse group of people. And because of that diversity, when interviewing and when going through those processes, each person then brings their thought process in. And we don't just go, oh, interview them for the sake of interviewing. Each person, when they're brought into the process, has a very valid, uh, and we have to listen to what they say. And if, for example, a junior person goes, look, I didn't like that person because they came in, they were really rude to us. Mm. We don't just go, oh, you're junior, so your thought doesn't matter. It's like, actually, no, that's a really important touch point or data point. So... I mean, that's one. That's how we do it. I know out there, there's obviously a lot of tech plays that are trying to kind of um, resolve that. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't have a, I guess, a, a real direct sort of answer for you. Um, the main thing for us was just finding people that believed in the vision of recu- removing unconscious bias. A lot of the people that work in our business, and not everyone, but uh, but some have gone through similar experiences where they've had really kind of biased processes through their own job seeking and mm-hmm. things like that. So what happens is because of that understanding, they're more open to actually looking more diversely. Okay. So we've got two more questions before we wrap up. Sure. And uh, number one, speaking of competitors, 
Uberwork just launched in uh, Chicago in October. What does that mean for Weploy? And do you see them as a direct competitor to you? I think it's great. Like when I uh, when I saw the news come out, I was really excited because um, you know it, it helps rise the tide and yeah. it helps validate what we're doing. You know, one of the biggest challenges we have is going and selling to a customer, and they go, "What what is this on demand stuff?" And we 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 part of sometimes our pitch will we'll reference like, "Well, remember?" Because people go like, "I'm not going to hire staff through an app. Like that doesn't make sense." <laughs> and then I was like, "Well, did you ever think about hiring a taxi or ordering food through an app, whereas you used to pick up the phone and call?" So now I get to actually put a real reference and go hey well uber's doing this now as well so it's it's a real thing um they're in a different sector than us as well they look at that kind of uh blue collar um area whereas we're really focused on white collar um so we don't see them as a direct competitor we we um i mean for sure there's an opportunity for them to cross over definitely can see that um but yeah for me i'm, I'm really excited because they're able to educate the market and help us potentially save a bit of marketing dollars. Okay, <laughs> awesome. That's great. <laughs> and um, lastly, what does the next 12 months look like for Weploy? Yeah, it's it's a really um, exciting time right now where Weploy essentially, uh, we, we talk about in chapters. So Weploy chapter one is coming to an end and Weploy chapter two is about to begin. Um, and so we've been really working off our original base of code and product, etc. And um, through our customers' learnings, we've been able to learn a lot more about what they want and how do we grow with them. Um, so at the moment, we're facing that situation where there are definitely at times where the product is limited and you know um, that causes uh, inefficiencies or those kind of things. So the next 12 months is really about bringing uh, taking Weplay from chapter one into chapter two and putting more fuel in the fire you know we just came back from the u.s um next year at, uh mid-year we're, we're looking to open a round of raising like all these things start to to um come about so i think yeah the next 12 months is in my opinion probably one of them is going to be one of the most defining moments of mm. where we play will be in the next three to five years. Um, you know, I can't say too much about the products we're developing, but some of the products that we are is, is super exciting. And from the early feedback that we've been getting, um, we, the biggest thing for me is like, how do I release this tomorrow? You know? Yeah. Um, so no, I, the next 12 months is going to be an incredibly busy and hard time, but, but, not in a negative, but in the most positive way we can imagine. And if there's an investor or customer or future employee who wants to get involved, how did they get in touch with you? Yeah, I mean, um, either myself, so uh, I'm quite active on LinkedIn. Um, so just search me up on LinkedIn. My email, Tony at WePloyApp.com uh, or just jump on the website. Um, anyone will, like if you just contact, like if you're a WePloyee, jump on the website. Um, the team there will, will, will take you through that process. If you're a client, um, you know, jump on or, or, or just email me directly. I'm always happy to speak to whoever um, about getting involved. Amazing. Tony, you've got such an incredible story and the company seems to be doing incredibly well. Thank you for taking time out of your day to be on a podcast. Thank you for having and me. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, wish you all the best in the future. Thank you very all much. Right. Cheers, Tony. Thank you.